Before we begin, there's a question I had. Just who precisely is the Great Scott? Could it be King William I, a.k.a. the Lion? Perhaps Mary, Queen of Scots? Maybe Robert the Bruce, or William Wallace? Or Scott Liddell, if you're a 90s uh, X-Men fan. Fair. Though that's a Scott in name and not heritage. Kill my joke, why don't you? (laughs) (laughs) There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The penny and James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello from the past, everyone. I'm James Irish. And I'm from the future. I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. And yes, indeed, in continuation of our summer blockbuster month, we are looking at the animated adaptation of Back to the Future. Great Scott. <laughs> so You're going to kill your voice if you keep doing that. Marty, by going back in time, you... No, I can't do that. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> back to the Future is a hallmark of 80s pop culture. A time-traveling tale of Marty McFly and his mentor, Doc Brown, traipsing around the timeline, trying to either prevent temporal paradoxes occurring by their unintended presences in other time periods, or correcting family matters. Often both. Your kids, Marty! We have to do something about your kids! Sorry. It made Michael J. Fox into an international superstar, and made the then-horrifying flop of an automobile, the DeLorean, into a cultural touchstone of the period. And that's just off the top of my head. I would never want a DeLorean for rec- for the record. Could you imagine, like, parking and trying to get out of that thing if two cars are next to you? Those doors do not give you much space. <laughs> do not give you any space to get out. No, they don't. You'd have to parallel park only. <laughs> With the trilogy at a conclusion in 1990, Universal Studios wasn't quite ready to let go of the flux capacitor gravy train. And the founding of a new division, Universal Cartoon Studios, gave them just the means to keep the franchise going. Ah, an animated series. (laughs) CBS will be the network to carry the torch in September of 1991, having just dropped another time travel-themed adaptation franchise from their roster in Bill and Ted, which moved to Fox that same year. Most heinous. Uh, say what you will about the DeLorean and its doors. At least it's more roomy than a phone booth. True, but you could probably get out of the phone booth easier. Six of one, half a dozen of another. TARDIS trumps them all. True. Even though, when you think about it, the TARDIS isn't a big jump from the phone booth in the first place, but it's bigger on the inside. Now, the first thing we need to make clear regarding this cartoon is that, officially, they do not fall into the movie's canon. This is the word of franchise co-creator Bob Gale, who serves as an executive producer on the series and also directs the live-action segments in Season 2. Despite the fact that the show itself does reference stuff that happens in the movies and takes place directly after the third movie, but yeah. (laughs) I suppose it's like the Pirate's Code. The continuity isn't law, it's just suggestions. Yeah. Now, there's a few critics I've seen that have said this... uh, Lack of continuity is indicative of the quality issues of the series, but I can't help but wonder if part of the reason also might actually tie into a continuity glitch built into the show itself. This glitch centers around Biff Tannen, 
who is coincidentally the second character named Biff we've seen in as many podcast episodes. You know, I had a thought about that recently. I mean, not to bring up Jabberjaw again, but Clamhead, Shelly, Bubbles, Biff? The other three have, like, names related to, like, being underwater. Biff doesn't, for as far as I know. Fair point. But Tannen's design in the show is based on how he appeared in the 1950s. Even though the base timeline for the show's events are at least nominally in 1991, when he would have been a full-blown adult, there's two possible explanations for this. One, the one that Pemmy suggested to me, is that this keeps Biff's appearance in line with all of his descendants and ancestors that pop up in the show. Makes sense. My own personal guess is that the animated series creators just found the younger Biff to be a more dynamic presence. Also fair. Or it could be a little of both. Could be. Now, this also won't be the only break with movie continuity we're going to find in this podcast. Oh, boy. But we're getting <laughs> way ahead of ourselves there. This is a bugaboo for Pemmy. Yeah, yeah we'll, get, we'll get to that. <laughs> now, Bob Gale isn't the only returning presence on the series from the films. I believe Robert Zemeckis serves as a director? Maybe. I don't recall seeing it in the credits, but I see it. But I see that fact referenced in in articles and reviews. I remember TV Guide also claimed that Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox was going to voice their uh, counterparts, which did not happen. No, no. But we would not lack for Christopher Lloyd, since he would reprise his role in the live-action segments taped specifically for the series to bookend each episode. Which just makes the fact that his cartoon counterpart is voiced by someone else more obvious when it leans in from one of the live-action segments directly into the cartoon. It does, but thankfully it could have been far worse. His replacement, Dan Castellaneta, who is best oh! known as the voice of Homer Simpson, <laughs> fills that role pretty ably. He does a pretty decent job. I, I will give him credit. Though his Homerisms does kind of sneak in here and there. We have two talents from the movie's cast also returning in the form of Thomas F. Wilson, as the previously mentioned Biff Tannen and the assorted ancestors and descendants. And Mary Steenburgen reprises her role as Clara from the third movie. Not that they use her that much in the show. Yeah. Which feels weird, because like you bothered getting the actual actress, and she appears like maybe in a handful of episodes with a reasonable amount of lines. So, who is filling the shoes of Marty McFly? That would be David Kaufman, who was already a veteran actor with his gig on Down to Earth, and would go on to be the voice of several well-loved animated characters, namely Jimmy Olsen in the DC Animated Universe, and the title role of Danny Phantom. He also just kind of normally sounds kind of like Michael J. Fox. Yeah. I think he's actually filled in for him on a few things, but don't quote me on that. Now, Marty and Doc, though, have some company on their time-traveling jaunts. They're joined by Doc and Clara's kids, who were very, very briefly introduced to at the end of the third movie. Jules and Vern. Get it? Ha! Hey, well, both him and Clara were big fans of those books, so... Guess so. I mean, that's part of what got them together in uh, the third movie, but that's beside the point. Uh, the oldest son, Jules, is voiced by Josh Keaton who's been in quite a few stuff recently. I know him best as Peter Parker and Spider-Man in the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon. 
Yep. And Ed Shiro in the uh, Voltron reboot. And this would be one of Josh's first major reoccurring roles, simultaneously debuting the same year as his turn as Curly of the Lost Boys in Fox's Peter Pan and the Pirates. And seemingly he played uh, Linus in one of the Snoopy specials. Indeed. And he was in the new Kids on the Block cartoon. <laughs> yeah, he was busy. Busy kid. Meanwhile, the more rambunctious and outgoing Vern is voiced by Troy Davidson, known for being in the new Leave it to Beaver series, the Ew. 1990s Pink Panther TV cartoons, Ew. and not much else, presumably retiring from acting to focus on other pursuits. Yeah, it's not for everybody. He does yeah. a good job, though, for the character. I'll give him that. It's hard to get good kid actors sometimes. Now, completing the cast is... Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill Nye the Science Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is before he became the PBS household name. In fact, this was Bill's first nationally broadcast gig, with his first break being the Seattle-based and broadcasted sketch comedy show Almost Live that garnered greater notoriety in its repackaged format on Comedy Central starting the following year from this series in 1992. Bill shows up at the end of each Back to the Future episode to demonstrate some basic science principles and experiments, meaning this show was an unintentional pilot for his most famous role. Pretty crazy. Nice. Yeah. Probably the biggest footnote for the entire series. Arguably. And not a half-bad legacy, if you ask me. Also, uh, seemingly, the <laughs> Einstein the dog had, like, two different voice actors. It's like uh, Danny Mann for season one and Hal Rail and season two. Uh, yeah. It's like, you had to recast the dog? <laughs> Danny Mann sounds familiar. Where? I'm, I'm looking real quick because I'm like, I, I know I've heard him before. So, shall we go forward to the past? Sounds good to me. Yep. That is the first episode we're looking at. A season one episode written by Earl Cress. Doc's opening wraparound has him broadcasting from the year 3 million B.C. Right smack dab in the Cretaceous period! Except that actually isn't the Cretaceous. That would be, at minimum, another 63 million years further into the past. Normally, I might give that sort of thing some leeway in a comedy show like this, but for a show trying to include legitimate educational elements, this is not a great sign. After a few quick jokes, Doc relates the tale the last time he and his kids were there, leading into our animated tale. And leading into a directly awkward transition between hearing actual Christopher Lloyd and then Don Castaneda doing the voice of Doc Brown. Yep. Doc calls for his kids and bonks his head into a light fixture when Jules surprises him while the kid's on a jetpack. Oucha magoucha! I think you do a better Doc Brown than I do. And, Pemmy, I got a question for you. Yeah? Is Alchamagaucha going to become the next jumping jellyfish? Uh, pretty much. They strapped Doc with a lot of these terrible catchphrases. And, like, they expect him to, like, catch on. Like, Alchamagaucha, uh, Galloping Galileo, uh, for Petrie's sake. Yep. And we'll reference a couple more. Which is funny that they're trying so hard to make these, like, catchphrases, yet... They, they severely reduced Doc's presence in the second season. But that's beside the point. 
Vern comes in next, smashing into both of them via a pair of electroglide boots, which Doc told him not to wear in the house. Oh, how many times have I told you not to wear your electroglide boots in the house? I don't know. I didn't keep count. We get some more character establishing humor that also establishes Chekhov's foil wrapper, with Vern wanting to save aluminum foil to make a gajillion dollars, and Jules telling him his math is off. But... Vern misunderstands that his meaning it will mean even more. Also, I, I want to give a small point out to the scene with uh, Einstein in the hammock where they cr- crash and Einstein just looks, gets up, looks around and goes back to sleep. It's like, I feel you, Einie. <laughs> yeah. So Doc is showing his kids his latest invention, which, yes, at first blush resembles a vacuum cleaner. But Doc calls it his proprietary ultrasonic subatomic molecular redistributor. I'm glad you said that, not me. Turning the kids' attention to the Doc Black Brown board, uh, the Doc Brown Blackboard, which is an actual joke. And also, this is really a flat screen monitor before such things were a reality. I I will say that the animation of this show is all over the place. But uh, this this whole scene with the chalkboard is really enduring. It's kind of cute. It is good. It's all it's made to look chalk drawn, and even to the point where when drawings overlap, you can see through the gaps in the top chalk drawing and see the other drawing underneath. It's a, definitely a very cute animation trick. So, props to whatever team got this got outsourced to. Yeah, via this uh, this presentation. It's demonstrating the principles of molecules and how the invention can break objects down on a molecular level. Vern is eager to try it on something, and he aims it at Einstein! The grief kid! (laughs) No kidding. Poor Einstein. (laughs) But this also is like the first time it shows one of the weirder aspects of this cartoon, which is the fact that they actually can understand Einstein's barks in this show. Because... Einstein barks in fearful response, and Doc's right. Like, Einstein's right. We have to be careful about trying an untested invention. Yeah. So Jules basically asks, why not test it now? And Doc relates a story of how he broke every window in Hill Valley in 1961 as a reason not to test it in town. But a light bulb goes off right behind him just as he gets an idea of where would be safe to test it. And Vern helpfully shuts off the light bulb. Which is... Also, admittedly, a kind of cute gag. Yeah, the only thing missing is a lampshade for the light bulb. <laughs> There's some TV tropes humor for you folks. <laughs> Place Hill Valley, time three million BC. And then they run, they they freaking near hit and run Marty. <laughs> yeah, and Marty is completely unharmed. This, combined with the animation style, is what really clued me in what level of tune physics this particular show is running on. Admittedly, they may have not been going fast enough to kill Marty. He should have been at least in a little pain. But yeah. if that doesn't clue you in, what happens immediately next will, which is right. literally the DeLorean pretty much puts out a giant rubber band to help propel them into 88 miles per hour. Although, before that, it turns out Marty came to drop off a video he and his girlfriend made. Yep. That also becomes important later. Chekhov's gun is all over this episode. As well as uh, Marty starting to tell a joke to Einstein. Yep, about a nerd throwing a clock out the window. Okay. Back with the Browns, they land at the end of the dinosaur age, 
and Vern bets there's at least one dinosaur left since a T-Rex is lumbering right at them. I'm closer than you thought, fools. I'm here. <laughs> For the one or two people who get what I'm referencing there. And in mid-chase, the, the Browns are scooped up by a Tyranodon, and the kids realize from its behavior, and arguably its toucan-like beak, that it's friendly. Also, hey, they have a dinosaur with feathers. Are they ahead of their time, or is that when that was actually deemed a thing? I couldn't tell you. I know that's the, the popular belief of what dinosaurs look like now, which I, I find less intimidating than just giant lizards, but, you know. At that size... I think I'd be intimidated by a teddy bear. Fair point. Oh, that reminds me. We need to do kid video someday. <laughs> so Vern names their rescuer Don and feeds him a chocolate bar as we get a cute flying scene before Don lands the Browns back at the DeLorean. Fortunately, the T-Rex didn't step on it. Securing the test site, Jewel spots a shooting star, which turns out to be a meteor coming right to Earth. We're all gonna be killed! Huh. They said killed on a kid's show on network television. Go figure. Yeah, I know. You usually can't get away with saying the K-word. I, I guess maybe that was one of the advantages of being, quotation marks, educational? Back from commercial break, Vern has to be reminded that said meteor will evaporate them so the kid hides in the DeLorean. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Doc quickly realizes his redistributor is the very thing to keep them from dying, but it needs additional power for something meteor-sized, and he calculates roughly 1.21 gigawatts. Wow, what a not-so-coincidence. <laughs> and we get an explanation of him rerouting the uh, Mr. Fusion battery into the his invention so that he can get the needed power, which kind of cool that they gave him gave an explanation for that. A lot of shows would have just had him just plug it in or something, so I'll, I'll give props where props is deserved. Yeah. With four minutes till the meteor makes landfall, they fire away, and it's a direct hit. Oh, ring my Alexander Gramble! Thank you, but I'll pass. Oh, by the way, I found out what Danny Mann's other role that was clicking in my head was. What was it? Jay Gander Hooter on Darkwing Duck. Oh, also, Hal Rell, if I remember right, was one of the other people who played Raphael in the uh, original Ninja Turtle cartoon because there was a few seasons where, for whatever reason, Rob Paulson wasn't Raphael. So, throw that out there, too. Jules grabs a couple rocks to carbon date, and they're ready to go back to their time. But the DeLorean doesn't start. Doc says he only used the car's battery as a loop around for powering the redistributor. So something else must have depowered it. As it's revealed that Vern is watching Marty's tape in the back. On top of that, Vern grumbles, What are you brainiacs looking at? Openly insulting his dad. Wow, great manners, kid. No kidding. Doc needs to ground that kid. Yeah. Also, how much how much energy does that freaking like TV take? Must have been an old, old, old model. One of the first color ones. Also, don't they have uh, Mr. Fusion? Oh, fair. But hey, they have come up with an idea. Use nearby lemons to repower the DeLorean. There was lemons in the Cretaceous period? That's a good question. Still, Doc explains that connecting both copper and aluminum in a citrus juice will create a small electrical charge. And what luck. Vern still has the aluminum foil from earlier. 
And fortunately, Doc has copper. So yeah, which, yep. despite me questioning whether or not the the lemons would exist in the Cretaceous period, that's still actually a pretty cool idea because it is a thing that kind of legitimately works. I don't know if it works on this scale, but it does make a battery. Yeah, so, they have to hook ev- into every lemon in the tree, and they manage to jumpstart the car's battery. Only the DeLorean is still in gear. And starts getting away from them. Thanks to one, that the Doc left the uh, DeLorean in gear. And two, because Jules's rocks land right on the gas pedal. Yeah. As you said, Chekhov's gun is all over the place in this. Mm-hmm. And since Vern can't reach the rocks, if the DeLorean hits 88 miles per hour, they'll have accidentally stranded Doc and Jules in the past, and Vern might get a ticket for driving without a license. As well as being underage, but yes. They can't outrun the car, but Donnie the Pterodon swoops in and helps them make the distance, landing on the DeLorean's hood just as it hits the magic 88 miles per hour. And as Doc Brown starts to uh, calculate the wingspan of the Pterodon and see how fast they can fly, just for fun, (laughs) and seemingly they survive the time warp while being on top of the DeLorean. (laughs) Yeah, but it's admittedly not comfortable. No cartoon fashion um, suit covered etc now I just now notice that Doc's character design has two watches on each of his arms but at first blush you and they would think they missed their time period except Jules notices the foliage isn't in the same places despite the fact that they can find the exact hill that they rolled off of they try and investigate what happened at what appears to be a fuel station And as they realize they are indeed in the correct year, they nearly run into a massive vehicle built big enough for a dinosaur. Because it is! We have dinosaur civilization. Vern pinches Jules to make sure it isn't a dream. And off they speed to get out of the path of the behemoth looking to refuel his massive road machine. I think I found my thumbnail picture. (laughs) So they fly into a city that's built to dinosaur scale making the DeLorean the practically the size of a small bug in comparison. And they explore some of the world, some of the various areas. We get to see office working dinosaurs, dinosaurs playing pool, lounge lizards! And as a cute touch, their pool cues are giant palm trees. I think they could have done more with this premise, but for the time they have, they at least got something out of it. It's at least an interesting idea on a conceptual level. Yeah. Doc surmises that the meteor they stopped was the one that killed the dinosaurs. And by blasting it, they stopped the extinction event, leading to their current surroundings. Vern wants to take video to show Marty, and Doc snaps out of his scientific wonder at a world where humans never developed to realize that they've eliminated their own timeline and have a little over 12 minutes to fix the issue or they'll vanish from existence. Also, make reference to the first movie by pulling out a Polaroid and seeing all of them and their friends start to fade out of existence on it. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice little ref. Jules points out that their best case scenario is to go back and prevent the preventing. But before they can do it, they're caught by a curious dinosaur pedestrian. That dinosaur takes the found DeLorean up to a officer who, uh, well... Can't escape it, I guess. Looks uh, familiar. (laughs) We may as well just call him Allosaurus Tannen. Yeah. 
But to his friends, you can call him Al. <laughs> and Jules activates a translator device, leading to a joke about him translating to Japanese by accident because they pick up the word Godzilla. Which technically wouldn't be Japanese because Godzilla is the American name, but... Yeah, uh, not many kids in 1991 would know the Japanese word is Gojira. So we'll let this go. Oh, heck, probably most adults in 1991 didn't know that either. So yeah, it's fair. <laughs> Finally switching to English, just in time for Allosaurus Tannin to pester the vehicle. The other dino wants to give the unusual creatures to the zoo, but Tannin insists on a research lab for a finder's fee. Also, yeah... Uh, and another reference we get, Tannen Soar knocking on a DeLorean saying, Hello! Hello! Mm-hmm. And he calls the other dinosaur Tailhead when he protests they'll be dissected. Because that's the dinosaur equivalent of Butthead, which he actually does call people in this show, which is kind of surprising, all things considered. Well, considering CBS had ran the show Rude Dog and the Dweebs, maybe a little less surprising. The, the fact that some of the episodes... While this episode doesn't do it, or the other episode we watched, there are some episodes that still have Biff's ancestor landing in manure. So that is surprising for even CBS. Doc quickly improvises an electrical charge from the battery to the DeLorean's chassis, shocking Allotannon into dropping them. And that, from my understanding, is something that does scientifically work. Because I remember a long time ago hearing some news article about Someone that was in a car that got shot by lightning, and the only reason they survived it was because they weren't touching anything metal in the car at the time. Mm. Tannen reaches for them as they fly off, and catches them with his tongue extending as he falls over. And the DeLorean tugs off off of the tongue, leaving Tannen with so much of it, he has to gather it back up in his hands. Did we mention that this is a far cartoonier interpretation than than you may or may not have thought? Yeah. (laughs) which probably makes putting this outside the movie's direct continuity the right move. Yeah. (laughs) So back at the Cretaceous, the Browns arrive just as their past selves left, and the returned Browns call for Donnie. They move quick to get the redistributor into reverse gear as their bodies start to vanish, and Vern wonders how many times they can be doomed in one day. Admittedly, also kind of a funny joke, but... Well, could be worse. Somebody could be singing the Doom song. Doom, 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 doom. With less than two minutes to spare, they reconstitute the meteor, reestablish their own timeline, and say a sad goodbye to Donnie as their friend faces the necessary historical truth of an extinction event. And the world was saved thanks to genocide. <laughs> there is a point that, like Jules mentions, that they are responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs. And I kind of feel like they had to put that in there. Just they were required to acknowledge what they did, despite kind of hand waving it. So in the present day, Marty is telling the punchline of his joke. He wanted to see time fly to Einstein as the Browns return. While Vern misses Donnie, Doc makes the rather correct point that human society would treat him the same way the modernized dinosaurs in the alternate world would have treated them. And then, just coincidentally, we get a familiar-looking bird landing on Vern's shoulder. Yep. And Vern asks if it's Donnie's great-great-grandson. And Doc says he needs a few more greats. Instead of the standard everyone-laughs ending we're so used to in this type of cartoon, 
Vern just keeps adding several more grates as we pan out to a view of the Earth. And that's just great. <laughs> now, live action Doc says the lemon thing sounds like something out of a cartoon, but calls upon footage of Bill Nye to demonstrate that it actually works. So Bill demonstrates how you can use a trio of lemons, some, fo- some foil, cardboard, aluminum, tubing, etc., etc., to power a small digital clock. You mean copper tubing? Copper tubing, yes. My, my mistake. Or if you weren't paying attention, Doc says, you might have ended up with a really weird glass of lemonade. <laughs> this is like one of the most uh, traditional science projects that schools do. Uh, I will give this show at least credit that the weaving in the science, they did a good job of finding a reason to weave in the science lesson of the day into the actual plot. That's actually kind of cool. Now, here's the only part I genuinely remembered from this episode when I originally watched it. And honestly, my most distinctive memory of the cartoon as a whole. A post-credits joke delivered by Biff. One of the first examples of them I can think of since The Muppet Show. Hey, what's that on your shirt? (laughs) Don't be so gullible. That joke's so old, first time I pulled it, I laughed so hard I fell off my dinosaur. (laughs) So... Overall, this was a harmless, actually pretty decent episode. Yeah, this one's actually pretty good. Uh, Season 1 has some good episodes that are... I'd say season 1's decent. Some episodes are good, some episodes are not so good. Season 2, on the other hand... Yeah. Yeah, this would not last, as we will see on the other side of the break. And we'll see you there. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, surely when the Highlander movie stated there could only be one, they never imagined how many sequels and spin-offs there'd be. But the animated series might be the wildest of the bunch, taking place 700 years in the setting's future and placing it in a post-apocalyptic setting. Can Pemmy guide a Highlander neophyte like me through this complicated mythology? Find out in two weeks. Now we turn our focus to Season 2, which is when things started to shift. Even though Doc has a big, actually does have a big role in the episode we're going to watch, most of the episodes have him actually play backseat to his kids. We could possibly blame CBS on some of this, since executives all seem to think kids are incapable of relating to anyone who isn't close to their age group. Yep, so now it's Marty and the kids for every episode, which... The fact that frickin' Vern, who's like, what, 10, is driving the DeLorean in episodes is just... mm, All kinds of questions about morality. (laughs) And that's just the first part of what Pemmings told me about this season. And what he told me isn't encouraging. Biff has a son named Biff Jr., who in one episode, uh, Biff forces him to dig a frickin' swimming pool, which is played for laughs and feels more, you know, abusive. Hmm. It's in this light, we take a deep breath and and look at, put on your thinking caps, kids, it's time for Mr. Wisdom. Mouthful of a title there. This one was written by Wayne Katz. Who obviously didn't, needed to rewatch the first movie before making this episode, but I'll get to that later. Yeah. Right away, the title is a parody of the original TV science educator, Don Herbert, a.k.a. 
Mr. Wizard, who got his start in Chicago with the show Watch Mr. Wizard in 1951, which will go national within a few years and run for over 500 episodes. I remember it being on uh, Nickelodeon. Yep, that's when he'd get his second life with the Nickelodeon series Mr. Wizard's World in the 1980s. Ah. Mr. Wizard was the trailblazer for a great many educational programs, with series like Beekman's World, Mythbusters, and Bill Nye's own show following in Don Herbert's footsteps. I'm glad you mentioned Beekman's World. I randomly was remembering that recently because... After all, the penguins in that show were named Don and Herb. Only thing I remember from Beekman's World is his haircut and the fact there was a guy dressed as a rat, I'll be honest. <laughs> Our episode begins at the Hill Valley Space Center and Air Sickness Clinic. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> With our live-action Doc Brown in astronaut gear. He's going to repair the local cable company's satellites in return for free cable and premium channels. And it's totally not superimposed over an actual picture of a NASA space center. Now, this isn't Doc's first brush with television work. And the cartoon proper begins with Marty studying for his astronomy class while hoverboarding. And he crashes into Doc's shed and one of his latest devices. The ever-absent-minded Doc only notices Marty's shoes. And then Marty himself after tugging on the teen's toes. Oh. To which gives us the uncomfortable line of, Stop playing footsies, Doc. Wow. So, Marty tries to get help from Doc on how long it'll take the Earth to travel around the sun, but Doc is more interested in showing off Marie, the memory archive recall indexer and enhancer. He must have really wanted to call it Marie. I mean, I guess you get to a point where you just really want to use uh, cool abbreviations any chance you get. Yeah, just ask the people who do behind S.H.I.E.L.D. Doc can't remember what it does, so he uses it to remember that it helps you recall any memory, including remembering to use oven mitts when handling anything over 50 degrees Celsius, like the device's headgear. Ouch! Also, hey, it's another one of those Chekhov guns. Mm -hmm. Doc encourages Marty to use his library of books rather than just giving him the answer outright to his question, as Doc uses a wrench to hammer in a loose nail before realizing that's not right. It's the wrong wrench. (laughs) Meanwhile, Vern is tuning into Mr. Wisdom's show, and Mr. Wisdom is a thick-mustached, bespectacled, unibrowed fellow whose audience participation bit is holding up his hand for a high five and asking, Cool enough, neighbors? He also definitely needs to brush his teeth. Jules isn't nearly as impressed with Mr. Wisdom, just like Einstein isn't terribly impressed with the meatless dog treat Jules offers after Einstein dramatically plays dead. Actually, I'm kind of disappointed in Jules as the uh, smart kid. He should be he should be well aware of why Einstein's not going to want to eat those. <laughs> yeah. Marty walks in to check the library as Wisdom's program tries to pass off a pastiche of a mousetrap experiment that was frequently used in ads for the real Mr. Wizard's show as a simulation of atomic energy. Yeesh. Turns out Mr. Wisdom is coming to Hill Valley the next day in his big brain bus, and Vern high-fives the TV set so hard it cracks. This is a strong kid. (laughs) Yeah. So Marty, carrying a massive stack of books, offers to take Vern since it might be a quicker way of getting his answer. 
Doc comes in, and he's not happy with the screen. And it's not the crack he's upset about. It's the crack pot. He trips on a tube of suntan lotion that Vern was using to protect against the TV radiation from sitting too close. And cheap jokes ensue after he crashes into Marty, with Doc groaning about Marie and Clara complaining he's talking about other women. Boy. Mm-hmm. You'd think Clara would know better. But hey, cheap joke. Yep. Go for low-hanging fruit. Transition to the mall, where a bunch of kids are gathered and a troop of lady performers introduce Mr. Wisdom, who teleports in with a puff of electricity and smoke. Quick question, since I don't remember at the moment. Uh, Lone Pine Mall, was that the same mall that uh, Marty originally? I think you've seen this uh, movie far more recently than I have. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Mr. Wisdom says he only has time to say hi and points the kids to his discount store before leaving the same way he arrived. Which, Marty's the only person smart enough to realize how much of a ripoff that is. But Marty and Vern head off to Mr. Wisdom's bus to get what they're looking for. In the Big Brain bus, it turns out Mr. Wisdom's signature look is all a stage prop. A bald, considerably more sinister-looking Mr. Wisdom is tallying up the money he's making off the kids. And his voice is totally not Biff Tannen's. <laughs> and to further reinforce the difference between his uh, actual self and his public persona, when an innocent little tyke walks up to say hello, Wisdom sends him down a trap door. Yep. You'd think people would hear about these kind of incidents. Yeah. And the more this goes on, the more I really hope the only thing he has in common with the actual Mr. Wizard is the similar name. I'm pretty sure that's probably the case. At least I sure as heck hope so. But Me too. It, it's made to be a parody just in concept, but not of the actual person. Wisdom states he'll send the next kid who approaches him to the lab rats gone bad, just as Vern and Marty arrive. Back from break... Marty makes note of the oddly nice carpeting on the bus, as Mr. Wisdom sneaks up on the two and simply says hello. At first. Before then threatening them with the lab rats gone bad. Yeah, these lab rats look like creatures right out of a contemporary program, namely Eek the Cat. Another show that's landed on the list, I should mention. Kumbaya! (laughs) Vern isn't even horrified, like the far more sensible Marty. And Vern observes his dad would never do experiments like that. Which, of course, Marty points out that Doc has a brain as big as one of those lab rats, which I I know he means the lab rat in its entirety, but sounds like he's referencing the lab rat's brain. So it's like, is is it really? (laughs) It's like, Mr. Wisdom recognizes the name of Dr. Emmett Lathrop Brown. So that's what the L stands for. I wonder if that's canon. And he calls off the rats, whose size was an optical illusion. Of course. Wisdom claims that Emmett was his dearest friend and wants to pay him a visit. Which, of course, Vern and Marty are more than willing to do, because, you know, they want his help, too. Or, well, Marty wants his help, Vern just thinks he's cool. So they lead him to the lab, and Wisdom shoves Vern and Marty away and goes in for the goodies. Noticing such things as, uh... Slice water, re- 
what, what a is fly it? rehabilitation and release center, as opposed to a fly swatter, uh, and a peanut butter maker that makes the peanut butter inside the nut's shell. Boy. And then we get into the one thing that really freaking bugs me. Yeah, it's at this point, Mr. Wisdom spots the flux capacitor. Pemmy, the floor is yours. Yeah, Mr. Wisdom sees the flux capacitor and makes a comment that he knows about it because that was Doc Brown's college dream invention, which makes absolutely no sense to the first movie because in the first movie, Doc came up with the flux capacitor when he fell and hit his head on a toilet in 1955. It's not a small detail because this is literally a big plot point because that's how Marty is able to convince Doc that he's from the future in the first movie because Marty knows about that. Doc doesn't believe him he came from the future. Marty explains, it's like, I know how you got that bump on your head. You got it because you fell on your toilet and that's how you came up with the idea of the flux capacitor, which Doc then believes Marty's from the future and shows him the sketch he drew of the flux capacitor. So, yeah, this actually really annoys the hell out of me because that's, it, it, like I said, if it was a small detail, that'd be one thing, but that's a literal plot point in the first movie that they just... Yeah. That is now your second, now wait just a minute, moment. Ay ay ay. Back to the cartoon... Just then, Doc walks in with a late-night snack, and he's not happy to see Wisdom, chasing him off with a food fight and some other devices. Including a, chasing him down with a motorized mousetrap? <laughs> I don't know if that's how you build a better mousetrap, folks. And in pure cartoon fashion, Mr. Wisdom runs right through the wall, making said Mr. Wisdom-shaped hole in the wall, which Doc at him for not using the door. Even though Doc was technically blocking the door, but, you know. Vern and Marty return via the wisdom-shaped hole the scoundrel left, and Doc explains the deal via a flashback to the American College of Technical Science and Difficult Math. <laughs> that, that actually sound, almost sounds like a Jay Ward joke right there. <laughs> at least they're still trying. Sometimes. The writers, that is. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> So Doc and Walter Wisdom were roomies and frat brothers at this college. And based on Walter's reaction to Doc's inventions compared to his own, he's got a jealous streak. So much so that he steals Doc's automated hula hoop and claims it as his own, which sent him on this road of uh, multiple toy and business deals, eventually getting his own show while Doc is, you know, sitting in Hill Valley. Doc is crying at the end of the flashback, thanks to the onion he was peeling. That's one of those jokes that I can't decide if it's funny or cheap. Both both kind of count. <laughs> yeah. Vern is also not thrilled with his former idol once he learns all this. However, said former idol this takes this time as to go in and sneak into Doc Brown's lab and steal said inventions. And he races off in the DeLorean, headed to ancient Egypt. Which he also said on Einstein. <laughs> Poor dog. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of abuse in these two episodes. Yeah. Also, why the heck did they not lock the DeLorean? Another good question. The Browns and Marty follow in the train. Wait, wait, wait. I get a- another question. Did he also leave the keys in the car? Another fair point. Doc. Holy crap. <laughs> As the train goes off in pursuit, Clara mutters in her sleep 
that she thinks Vern fell out of the bed again. Wow. Mary should have been rightfully pissed if this is what she got in the show on a regular basis. This is more than she got on a regular basis, sadly. She has more appearances in this one episode than she does, like, a majority of episodes. So arriving in the time of the pyramids, Wisdom gets there to flip one to the pointy side up and realizes he's being pursued. Thanks to the uh, locomotive from the third movie, which does get used a decent amount in this show. Mm -hmm. With a plunger torpedo connecting them, Wisdom changes the scenery to Krakatoa in 1883, the year it last exploded, and disconnects the line from the torpedo to send his pursuers into the volcano. Youch! Cue a commercial break. Yep. Back in the present, Einstein is watching an Arsenio pastiche. Complete with joke of woof, 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 woof. Yep. When Clara asks where everyone is. A single woof from Einstein communicates the stolen DeLorean, and Clara's follow-up question is answered by an interrupting illegal broadcast from Mr. Wisdom. I'm more concerned by how, like, uncaring (laughs) Einstein seems to be about, like, the DeLorean being stolen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's just kind of like, eh. The Wisdom is hawking the DeLorean for a dollar short of a cool million. Seems a little short-sighted for a device like that. Well, you know, I'm sure you'll get uh, the tax that you would get with that would probably be more than them. Anyways. <laughs> so Doc and company arrive, having survived the volcanic experience via his giant oven mitts. His giant full body oven mitts. Um, okay. In a show that's not trying to be scientifically based, that may have been a hand-waveable thing, but this is a show that constantly tries to be scientifical. Yeah, I mean, let's be perfectly honest. The convection of all the heat being given off by the lava would have uh, melted the DeLorean and turned the skin of the characters into the consistency of beef jerky long before they even hit the lava. And, well, also ignoring the fact they weren't in the DeLorean, they were in the locomotive. In the train, yeah. But the train would have melted even more. Yeah, that would have been incinerated, like, instantaneously. Lava's not a fun thing to mess with. Now, on one hand, nearly every TV show, movie, and video game that uses lava as a plot point forgets this, too. On the other hand, like Pemmy said, this show is trying to teach science, at least ostensibly. Not to mention, even ignoring the science aspect, okay, that explains how you saved yourself, but what about the train? Yeah. Let's just gloss over the fact the train, however, had no protection. So Doc insists the DeLorean be returned, and Wisdom claims Doc knows nothing of science. But Wisdom's hypocrisy is made clear when he responds to Doc's galloping Galileo with a befuddled, Who? Marty proposes a contest and this is where the episode really starts to lose steam also we get a scene of Clara putting on the suntan lotion as she gets close to the TV Eh. throughout the contest Wisdom demonstrates he has little idea what any of the things he swiped do 
He even activates Marie and fries his own brain. And the kid who got trapdoored earlier gets his revenge. By throwing wisdom down the trapdoor. Yep. Doc tells Marty that Marie has a flaw. It only works in reverse, and you forget everything. But then how did Doc use it at the start of the episode? I know, right? It, it makes no sense. Now that is in conjunction with everything else we complained about with the ignoring one of the most important plot points of the Back to the Future movie and all the issues of lava convection. This whole episode is one giant... Now wait just a minute! Ugh. And we end the episode with Jules and Doc finally telling Marty the answer of how long it takes to travel around the sun. A year. It's 365 days, right? That's correct. Except on leap years. Yep. Which, as Earthlings do, every year. This is not cool enough, neighbors. <sighs> Back to live action, mercifully. Doc explains the way satellites work with Bill Nye showing the principles of orbit. I guess that's another thing we can see in season two. They don't even try to have the science project relate to the episodes anymore. And another thing we lost from season one to season two, the end of credits gags. Yep. We still got Bill Nye, though. Yeah. So I guess overall, what do we think of this one? Uh, it's not great. <laughs> no, but also it's honestly crazy to think about what a difference a decade can make. If a show with this specific level of writing were a contemporary of shows like Drac Pack and its early 80s zilk, we'd be heralding it as ahead of its time. You can see signs, especially in the first season, that they're absolutely trying to make something worth the time of its audience. Yeah, season one definitely has episodes that feels like it's trying. Um, season two, less so. <laughs> Some of the plots are basically just... Oh, Marty keeps lying. He needs to learn not to lie. Or heck, they have an They have two episodes. They don't even have time travel in season two. One of which Jules creates a money tree. The problem is, this was the era where cartoon programming was starting to make real strides in quality. With productions like DuckTales, Bobby's World, Garfield and Friends, and Tiny Tiny Adventures. Batman the Animated Series. All genuinely breaking ground on both network TV and in syndication. To say nothing of what the 90s would bring on with Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network's original programming. Yeah. I do want to mention one thing since it, we don't see it much in these, this episode. Uh, they also weirdly evolve Einstein to be less of a dog and more like funny animal character. Complete mm. with like in the first episode, he literally drives the DeLorean. And this is strictly me being speculative here. But this boom in quality might have caught a new competitor in the field like Universal completely off guard. You've heard of trying to bring a knife to a gunfight? With Back to the Future, they were bringing a broadsword to a battle between Sherman tanks. Yeah, it's not on the same quality. Also, I gotta say, the fact that they like actually model the characters after, like, you know... Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox design-wise, and still have him do all this slapstick stuff, sometimes even making, like, a lot of, like, slapstick gag expressions and scenes feels weird. At least now, to me. Now, don't get me wrong. From the episodes I reviewed, the show absolutely has its moments. 
but this is a case where maybe Universal should have gotten a few other projects under their belt before getting this ambitious and trying to do something based on a property with a built-in audience like this franchise has. Yeah. Like I said, season one has a lot of good moments. Season two is just... As it is, the tone is wildly different from the movies, more akin to traditional cartoon slapstick than the family-driven comedy and drama mixed with science fiction tropes that the movie trilogy is built on. And trying to tack on educational content on top of all that might have been a bridge too far. Because this is really cartoony and really slapsticky, and all the characters' personalities are kind of simplified. Marty's kind of a doofus in this show. Mm -hmm. Now, the series did win daytime Emmys for sound mixing and editing, so hey, kudos there! Um, Man, there was something else I wanted to mention about this show, but I can't remember... I do know that Thomas F. Wilson actually appeared, uh, a.k.a. Biff Tannen, actually does appear in Two episodes of Batman the Animated Series. Hmm. He, he's oh. the guy who killed uh, Robin's parents. Oh. So following this show's second season on CBS, it would be canceled due to considerably lowered ratings. But it would, ret- it would return on the Fox Box block of programming for a few months in 2003. Wikipedia's page on the series claims runs on ABC and Nickelodeon, but I can't find a thing to confirm those. I remember appearing on Fox, but I don't remember it ever appearing on Nickelodeon. The Fox Box run is also backed up by an archived press release, at least. I, I used to also have a download of episodes from recordings from the Fox Box, so okay. I know that for sure. Now, the cancellation of the show might have been for the best anyway, since that same year in 1993, Bill Nye went on to do his own aforementioned wildly popular show with Buena Vista Television. Thus, the scientific content that they relied on to say, see, see, we're educational, would have needed a new consultant who was also comfortable in front of a camera. Oh, man. This is... uh, See... In as many words, yes. (laughs) Also, if you do want to watch this show, it is released on DVD. Yep, the complete series is included with the Back to the Future trilogy. So there, there is that. I also got to just mention the the character designs in this show are something. <laughs> yeah, the 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 main characters look decent enough, but the others look far more cartoonishly exaggerated. Yeah, I the uh, the DVD box set actually comes with a small video that where they interview the people that designed the show, and one of the characters, and two of the character designers admitted that with the background characters, they kept trying to make them uglier and uglier to see who can outdo the other. So, yeah. Yeah. To be honest, while the the main characters look okay, the overall designs aren't what I'd call great. It's a kind of ugly-looking show. The uh, animation, though, is fluctuant. Sometimes Some scenes look really good, especially in the first seasons, and then sometimes... It looks bad. (laughs) I think that just about wraps it up for this episode. We will return in two weeks with the conclusion of our summer blockbuster month, because after all, in the end, there can only be one more episode. (laughs) Nice. Until then, it's time to restock the breakfast cereal. Cool enough, neighbors. Have a great week, everybody. And thanks for tuning in. See ya! The penny and James to the soda, hopefully funny.
we interrupt this podcast outro to give you this late-breaking Flower City Comic Con announcement. To accidentally tie in with this episode, the gang at Flower City Comic Con are bringing a replica of the Back to the Future DeLorean to the show. You can see it and all our wonderful guests and vendors and attractions and everything else at the Total Sports Experience in Gates, New York, September 16th through 17th at 2023. For tickets, just head over to fc3roc.com. Okay, you can play the outro now. Go on. Go on. Do I have to do it? Okay. The Pemmy and James kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast! The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.